0: Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The invisible hand of NATO is behind the Kosovo provocations, according to some. Also, the U.S. signals a willingness to negotiate on a replacement start treaty. Joining us to discuss this and more, we've got former UN weapons inspector in Iraq and author, writer, and all-around smart guy, Scott Ritter. Scott, welcome back to the Critical Hour. much. Thanks for having me. In addition to the conflict in Ukraine, Europe is now faced with the prospect of renewed conflict in Kosovo. Serbia's breakaway province officially named Kosovo and Metoja, according to the Serbian constitution. Kosovo's unilateral secession was recognized by the main Western powers in 2008. Hmm. Is somebody trying to open up another front? Scott Ritter. Uh,
1: The short answer is yes. Um, You know, the, the fact that the There hasn't been universal recognition of um, Kosovo's independence by Europe. I mean, there's been some major holdouts. Spain, indeed, is one. The Spanish uh, prime minister was in Belgrade as this crisis unfolded. He's left and given a public address saying that uh, Kosovo is not an independent state, uh, that Kosovo has no right to do what it's doing, which is to seek to assert um, sovereignty over territory, which from the Serbian perspective and indeed <laughs> under international itself uh, belongs to Serbia. This is what I call the license plate war. Um, seems trivial enough. Um, Kosovo is simply saying that uh, for Serbs to enter territory that Kosovo deems to be uh, sovereign Kosovar territory, they have to, and the Serbs that live in inside Kosovo, have to change their license plates. Uh, so far, the Serbs have been using license plates issued by the Serbian government because they say that's our legitimate government. We recognize, um, you know, their, their, their sovereignty over us. Uh, Kosovo is saying, no, you're going to have to change your license plates. You're going to have to, when you go back and forth between Kosovo and Serbia, get special travel permits, et cetera. And the Serbian government said, no, that's uh, an infringement on sovereignty. We won't. T- it. This is something that's been going on for some time, I think the problem first reared its ugly head uh, back in twenty twenty one and at that time, uh, the compromise was reached where they put stickers over the flags that were on the license plates. But now the Kosovo government has decided to up the ante and they recently passed two laws which say as of aug- August first uh, the the Serbs who live in Kosovo will have to change their license plate get travel documents, et etc. And here we were um, going into August 1st last night, and Serbia said, no, that will never happen. Now, why do I believe NATO is involved? Well, first of all, nothing happens in Kosovo without NATO or European Union uh, having their guiding hand. Uh, Tony Blinken was in Kosovo last month after the Kosovars passed this law, uh, and there's no doubt in my mind that this was one of the leading items, meaning the Kosovars were saying, if we go through with this, Will we have the support of the United States? Will we have the support of NATO? Uh, and right now, it appears that they do. NATO has uh, a little over uh, 3,500 peacekeeping forces in uh, Kosovo. Uh, their mandate is not recognized uh, under the Security Council. It's an unlawful <laughs> presence, according to the Serbs. And they mobilized their troops, ready to send them up to the border to defend Kosovo in case of a potential uh, Serbian, um, you know, military response. Uh, Fortunately, sanity has prevailed in the short time. Um, the, uh, the There was an intervention uh, by the United States, ironically, and uh, in, in Europe, uh, the Kosovars to agree to uh, postpone implementation of this law for another month, meaning that it won't come into effect until September 1st. But that only kicks the, the can down the road. Eventually, this issue of Kosovars' um, you know, independent status; its its ability to to uh, assert its the over uh, territory uh, that it claims belongs to it um, is going to have to be addressed because Serbia is not yielding. Serbia will, re- refuses to yield on this issue, and so far, nobody's been able to come up with a um, with, with a compromise solution that's the, that operates to the satisfaction of all parties.
2: How concerned should we be that this could be one of those? triggers that nobody really anticipated. When the situation started in Ukraine, there was discussion, there were parallels about World War I and that, you know, that this is how World War I started. Should we be concerned that with Serbia n- not yielding on this, that this could be a trigger to a bigger conflict? Well,
1: absolutely. Look, it's not just we... Croatia has been saying all along, "Hey guys, before we pick a fight with Russia and Ukraine, we might want to fix the problem we have in our backyard right here at home. This uh, Kosovo problem—it's a huge issue, and it's not just Kosovo. Um, there's a Serbian element to the ongoing crisis in uh, Bosnia, um, where you know the the, the Serbian population there uh, the, the has challenged." Uh, the The right of a of a European union appointed uh, overseer uh, to you know uh, on what it deems to be its sovereignty, and the head of the Serbians in Bosnia have said that the solution may be for us to declare our independence from Bosnia and join with Serbia, so we could be looking at uh, the beginning of uh, Serbia. Uh, seeking out of frustration of the unwillingness of the West to respect Serbian uh, sovereignty, Serbian national aspirations, uh, to create a greater Serbia uh, inside Europe that would inevitably lead to conflict with NATO. Why NATO is distracted, by the way, uh, with Ukraine. There's 3,500 NATO troops in Kosovo right now, Um, that's not sufficient to stand up to any uh, meaningful uh, Serbian, um, you know, uh, military action. Uh, You know, this, you know, NATO uh, Air Force would get mobilized. Um, Russia may, uh, has has said that they will support Serbia, not militarily yet, but support Serbia. This could be the beginning of a, uh, uh, this could be the trigger of a NATO-Russian conflict that has so far been
0: avoided in Ukraine. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a threat. You know, my immediate thought was, well, the U.S. is doing this. But there are other entities, the U.K., MI6, et cetera, There are other hawkish entities in the European theater that could be involved also here, because it just seems to me there's so many hawkish entities that they're up to no good all over the place. Scott.
1: Absolutely. Look, the, the Germans started this back in 1992 when they recognized uh, Croatian and Bosnia uh, independence from uh, from uh, Yugoslavia. Uh, and, and therefore uh setting in motion events that created a, this, the, the civil war uh, and we 're still living with the consequences of that today um, you know so and there 's a heavy german hand here as well um, this you know this this is uh about uh you know European ambitions who always viewed um, you know Yugoslavia and Serbia as problematic and um, was seeking to curb. Uh, what they considered to be the, uh, you know, the poison of Serbian nationalism. Um, but now we have a situation where NATO has not been, um, you know, focused on this problem. I think there was many assumptions being made about the defeated status of Serbia, up to including uh, people trying to get Serbia in the European Union and join NATO and things of that nature. Um, the Serbs aren't heading that direction. They're heading the exact opposite direction, and. Um, You know, but again, this might be one where, um, you know, Europe's appetite uh, exceeds its ability to provide Uh, NATO isn't what it used to be. Um, You know, NATO is already stressed in Ukraine and, um, you know, NATO, I don't believe, will be able to generate the uh, kind of political and military um, unity necessary for um, to stand up to Serbia. Already, like I said, Spain has said Kosovo is an illegal entity there's other european states that believe the same thing and um for nato to try and act in kosovo or act in bosnia um would would create you know the kind of rift that could tear nato apart
2: all this while president biden has stated that washington is now ready to work with russia in order to negotiate the creation of a new framework for nuclear arms control that would replace the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or START. The president insisted that Russia should now demonstrate readiness to coordinate with Washington in the sphere of nuclear arms control. Your thoughts, Scott Ritter? (laughs) Uh, I I love the word insisted. Um,
1: Yes. (laughs) uh, First of all, arms control agreements to work require an element of trust. I mean, that was the old Ronald Reagan you know, when he stole the, 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 the Russian state, saying, Dover and no trust but verify. Um, you know, with the emphasis on verification, that's where people like me came into place, the weapons inspectors, on-site inspection, etc. cetera. Uh, assuming that that trust existed, trust no longer exists between Russia and the West, especially between Russia and the United States. Russia now knows that the United States cannot be trusted when it comes to arms control. They know that because uh, the United States during the INF Treaty about uh, the capabilities of the Mark 41 Aegis Ashore, uh, trying to tell the Russians, no, 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 man, this is only, only an anti-missile defense thing. Those pods they, you can't get them to Glickums or, you know, uh, cruise missiles, or we're not going to convert the missiles to things. No, no, no. Well, it turns out within days of the U.S. withdrawing from the INF Treaty, we fired a ground launch cruise missile from a— um, uh, a Mark 41 pod uh, proving what the Russians said all along, that this was dual capable, fully capable of launching uh, INF capable missiles. The United States can't be trusted because we lie, we cheat, we steal. The same thing with the Star Treaty. We are cheating as we speak, both in terms of submarines and bombers. The Russians know this. Why would they want to work with us when we can't be trusted? And the last component is Russia just spent billions of dollars um, converting its strategic nuclear forces into an unbeatable, um, you know, uh, they have deployed new weapons, which we can't touch, which, frankly, scare the living dog poop out of us. Um, That's why suddenly there's interest, because Biden's saying, oh, my God, the Russians have all this capability. And in order for us to respond, we're going to have to spend trillions of dollars at a time when our economy is in a recession. How do you think we're going to go to the American people and say, you've got to spit up. $300 $300 billion next year to rapidly modernize our nuclear force. Uh, and the American people are going, you got to feed us. you got to get baby formula on the shelf. you got to lower the price. There's a lot of things you need to do, Biden, before you come to us. As, and by the way, if you need that money, stop sending it to Ukraine. Stop provoking war with China if you need that money. Uh, th- this is a discussion Biden doesn't want to have. So he's insisting that Russia solves his domestic political problem by coming to the table and being willing to negotiate weapons they've already spent money developing for weapons that are still on the drawing board here in the United States. I think it's a non-starter.
0: Before we go, your thoughts on the Pelosi-Taiwan issue?
1: If Pelosi lands Taiwan, as it appears she will, uh, it's a clear signal that the United States no longer recognizes its one China policy, that we've made a determination that Taiwan is a sovereign state. Uh, worthy of the visit of number two in the line of succession in the United States. Pelosi will be allowed to land. Pelosi will be allowed to depart. And then China is going to take Taiwan off the face of the map. And it's
0: our fault. You know, that's exactly what I thought. It's funny because everybody's talking about what they'll do if she lands. And will they try to stop her? Blah, blah, blah. I thought to myself, I thought, well, if I'm then come on in. See you later. You leave. Bye. Have a nice day. And at that point, now, this is my property. This is my province. So it's funny you say that because that's what I thought. It's kind of the obvious thing. If I was China, that's what I'd do.
1: Why complicate things by purposely engage, creating a situation where you're engaging with the, uh, with, with the Ronald Reagan battle group, carrier battle group? You don't need that. Let Pelosi go. Let the battle group disperse. And then you take
0: Taiwan. I think you're right. Yeah, make them think that everything's calmed down. And uh, OK, now time to take care of business. We've been talking with Scott Ritter, former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. You can find his writings all over the place. He's an author. He's got books. You name it. You are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. World leaders issue warnings about Nancy Pelosi's provocative trip to Asia as pro-war Democrats and Republicans push the world to the brink of great power conflict. So far, Speaker Pelosi's itinerary does not mention a stop in Taiwan, but the Chinese military seems prepared to take dramatic action. Joining us to discuss this, we have Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst and co-founder of a Veteran Intelligence, Professionals for Sanity. Ray, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you, Carlin. In Ray's article, which is called Pelosi Taiwan, an easy way out for Biden, which you can find at antiwar.com, Ray starts by saying, let's begin with a syllogism. Major premise, Biden does not want war with China. Minor premise, he is commander in chief. Conclusion, Biden can order a Navy carrier battle group to change directions. Ray. Ray. Is there an easy way out for Biden? Is there an easy way out for all of us?
3: Yeah, hopefully his memory is good back to the spring before last, uh, when he did precisely the right thing. Uh, Let me explain. Um, Back in the end of March last year, that's 2021, uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky of Ukraine, Uh, issued a a formal decree saying, we're going to take back Crimea from Russia, and if it takes weaponry to do it, we're going to use force. That was the 24th of March. Immediately, he started sending rolling stock with weaponry south and southeast. The Russians, for their part, immediately started sending lots, lots of troops, tens of thousands of troops to the south and the southwest. The issue was joined. The Russians were scaring the pants off everyone, 100,000 troops, most people said. Well, uh, Joe Biden got a little scared. And so um, he was asking around, you know, how many Russians are there out there? Well, Russian defense minister obliged him by saying on the morning of April 13th last year, you know, as a response to what NATO is doing. Uh, we're we're increasing the number of troops, and we're sending um, two armies and three airborne formations to the western regions. Well, that was the morning of April thirteenth, right? <laughs> uh, that afternoon, uh, Biden suddenly called Putin and said, well, "Wait a second, we have to de-escalate tensions now." What's really interesting, and what's to the point here, is that on that same day, I think, as a result of that conversation, uh, Biden canceled the deployment of two heavily outfitted, very modern warships, U.S. warships into the Black Sea. They had requested permission from Turkey to enter the Black Sea. Everything was go until all of a sudden, that same day, April 13th, Biden canceled and told him, go go visit Greece. It's much nicer than the Black Sea. Okay, now, what happened next? Well, Biden says to Putin, in a surprise kind of way, oh, oh, by the way, let's have a bilateral summit uh, that where we can discuss, quote, the full range of issues facing the United States and Russia. Well, uh, that's not the end of the story, but we can end there because what I'm citing here is specific precedent for what Biden has the option of doing now. He is commander-in-chief. I, for one, do not think he wants to war with China. And so the easiest thing to do is to turn the USS Ronald Reagan battle, not battle, but aircraft carry and battle group around. Tell them to go to Hawaii. It's much nicer. It's like Greece and Hawaii. Don't go near the Taiwan Strait. That's all he has to do. I dare say that uh, Nancy, when told about that, might change her plans. Right now, it it looks like she's going to go through with it some way or another. And the only thing I'll tack on to that is, you know, the people in the White House seem to be really kind of seventh graders. Uh, This this fellow, uh, what's his name, Uh, John Kirby, Uh, he said two days ago, look, um, there's no reason There's no reason for China and the U.S. to come to blows over this. And then today, he says, there's no reason. There's no reason for these recent threats by the Chinese government. Well, he doesn't get to decide whether people come to blows over this. That's the important thing. The Chinese get to decide, and they are in a position of overwhelming superiority out that way. The Pentagon White House really should take note
2: and Ray, as your point about Biden being the commander in chief, he could also, since I believe Pelosi is on a military transport, he could call the Pentagon and tell him, don't fly her to Taiwan. He he could I think he could do that. And as the president, while he was on the campaign trail, he talked about leading with diplomacy. And he's not doing that. So in listening to the analysts and, and Kirby and Blinken. How much of this is for domestic consumption, particularly as we're moving closer to, to the midterms? hundred percent.
3: As usual, you, you hit it right on the head. Uh, why does Nancy Pelosi uh, decide to do this? Because of the midterms. Uh, she wants to sort of, if she's going to, if the Dems lose, she's out, of course, uh, never to come back at her age and she wants to go out with a flourish, seeming really, really tough. Well, you know, it's gonna be a debacle for the Dems, and she should have realized that. The, the amazing thing is that she didn't apparently coordinate this with Biden or with the Pentagon. And so here is, the, here is Nancy Pelosi going off to, to do this, uh, what the Chinese call a provocative thing, uh, just for, for a domestic benefit, and it's going to backfire because either she's going to get Biden to do something that he will have to defend himself against for not standing up to the Chinese, or the Chinese are going to move against uh, uh, speaker policy. And in you know, the worst case, she lands in Shanghai, rather than <laughs> in Taiwan, and then we have a real diplomatic fiasco. So there's no reason for her to do this. She should have coordinated at very least. You know one thought i had is that pelosi you know she's not her own person for god's sake hillary clinton has run hers for 30 years now okay what's hillary telling her and my suspicion is hillary is telling nancy joe is finished joe biden's gotta go we gotta embarrass him you know Uh, i mean if he doesn't protect you or maybe he'll, he'll he'll call the visit off, tell you to come home. Wow. Then we got him. Then he's weak against the Chinese as well as against the Russians. And we can get our candidate, Kamala Harris, or somebody I bless, says Hillary, into the next run.
0: You know, Caitlin Johnstone has an interesting article. It's... China is issuing the same red line warnings about Taiwan that Russia issued about Ukraine. When I hear these fools in Washington saying China's bluffing, here's the thing about it. If I'm standing there and you're pointing a gun at me and I say you're bluffing, I think he's bluffing. The problem is the stakes are too high. The problem is it's fine to say that in a game of cards. Worst case scenario, you lose 50 bucks. Okay. In a game of war, if you're, I think he's bluffing, but if he ain't, a lot of people are going to die and you could throw the world into great power conflict. It shows how irresponsible and how far from reality our political leaders have gotten, Ray.
3: Well, I'm not going to disagree with you on that, Garland. Uh, The important thing to remember here, in my view, is that this is 25 years after Speaker Newt Gingrich visited Taiwan. <laughs> what has happened in China in those twenty-five years? My God, they are a formidable, a formidable foe. Not only economically, but now militarily, they're they they're they're, up, they're full to the gills with the ways that they can uh, they can embarrass the United States with respect to this visit. And they're in a position of such strengths, particularly in that particular area, that I think that comparing it with 25 years ago is, a, is really a bad mistake. This business of parsing Chinese words, parsing Chinese warnings, well, you know, that, that can be useful. But just look at the situation, look at China and Russia now in this tectonic Shift of the correlation of forces—they're together, and the U.S. happens to be losing with its proxies in Ukraine. Uh, It's—it's—it's it's, it's, well, as you say, Garland. It's really not very smart. It seems to be crazy for the U.S. to be challenging China when China is not really challenging us.
2: One of the other dangers I see here is if China doesn't respond immediately then analysts here will say, oh, see, they were bluffing, failing to appreciate they'll respond on their terms in their time when they're ready. And the Chinese foreign minister says, "Uh, we have repeatedly made clear our firm opposition to Speaker Pelosi's potential visit. If the U.S. insists on making the visit and challenges the red line, it will be met with resolute countermeasures. But they don't say what those resolute countermeasures are. So they could be economic. They could be military. They could be economic and military. I just think there will be a catastrophic failure on behalf of the United States side if China doesn't immediately respond. They'll see that as weakness, not understanding China will do it in China's time.
3: Well, I agree. China time is very different. There will be economic measures also. But with all the warnings coming out of Beijing, I have some experience in this. The emphasis is on military countermeasures. Now, they need not be shooting Pelosi's plane down, but I think something military for the near term is going to happen if she goes through with this. Uh, I just would like to emphasize how serious this is. I mean, we're talking about war with China and with Russia. Uh, if if I could leave on a lighter note, i just quote an old song from, well, you guys are probably too young to remember it, but whether Nancy goes or not r- 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 comes down to this. She didn't say yes, she didn't say no, <laughs> she didn't say, okay, I don't want to go. So what will she do, I'll leave it to you. My God, it's important what she does. And uh, you know, <laughs> we have to have some sort of sense of humor here, but let's not minimize uh, the effects of this. I think, for, for what it's worth, the Chinese are gonna respond militarily. I don't think they're gonna shoot her playing down, but no matter how she kind of slides into Taiwan, which apparently she still intends to do, the Chinese are gonna respond immediately, as well as in their own time, as you suggest.
0: The other thing, Ray, is whether she goes or not, this will dramatically change the relations between the United States and China. That's it for good. A minute and a half, Ray. Well,
3: gee, you know, I, I, I think they've already changed like for good. Um, there's no reason that I can conceive that the U.S. should regard China as an implacable enemy. For three millennia, for God's sake, the Chinese have avoided attacking other people, except in the rare instance like Cambodia or something like that. Uh, they're, they're focused inward. They have <clears throat> 1 billion point four people. They have brought them up from poverty mostly. Are they spending more in defense? Of course they are, but I see that as a reaction to these threats from the United States. So not only is it not necessary, now, the only people who profit from this are the Navy and the people who supply the Navy with weapons. There's talk about doubling the size of the Seventh Fleet. Well, there you go. That's billions and billions of dollars expended when our kids are going hungry, when our schools are going unfunded, and when so much else could be done.
0: Opportunity costs, mind you in our own country. We've been talking with Ray McGovern. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. You can find his work regularly at antiwar.com. And of course, you can go to raymcgovern.com. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The FBI raided an African socialist group's offices claiming ties to Russian intelligence. The accusation seems to center around a member of the group who ran for mayor. Joining us to discuss this, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn is a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, historian, and researcher. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
4: Thank you for inviting me.
0: The Black Alliance for Peace has released a, uh, a condemnation of the action, and it reads as follows. The Black Alliance for Peace unequivocally condemns and opposes the latest domestic U.S. state repression and intimidation tactics currently being leveled against the African people's socialist parties. Black Alliance for Peace believes that these raids continue the history of state repression directed against black people in the U.S. This repression now occurs under the guise of opposing adversary nations. But regardless of how these actions are characterized, black people still bear the brunt of surveillance and police violence. Here's a line that concerns me from one of the other articles, Dr. Horn. And the lines like this. It's not just the Uhuru movement the FBI is investigating. Other political groups in Georgia and California are also accused of working with Russians and spreading their propaganda. Dr. Gerald Horn, your thoughts?
4: Well, obviously, uh, this is an outrage. And I should say to begin with, in the interest of full disclosure, that for years now, I've been doing a weekly report on international affairs on the radio station in St. Petersburg, Florida of the Uhuru movement and their affiliate, the African People's Socialist Party. However, before the authorities listened to my words and sent a battering ram to my door with flash grenades, uh, let me quickly add that I do not have a monogamous relationship with the Uhuru movement. In fact, I publish books with the um, Monthly Review Press, which is an independent socialist platform uh, appeared on the radio station of the Party of Liberation and Socialism. I've published books with the Communist Party publishing arm. I hope that doesn't get me into trouble. And as well, i appeared on the networks of Deutsche Welle in Germany, Radio France in Paris, Pacifica Radio, Russia Today, Sputnik. And in fact, I used to write regularly for the Los Angeles Times in the early 1990s. And I certainly did not agree with their position on historic Palestine. And so I say that in part with tongue in cheek, but in part seriously, because this rate on the African People's Socialist Party in Florida and in St. Louis, my hometown and my old neighborhood, in fact, in St. Louis, I hope that doesn't get me into trouble, too, is a warning sign because it's clear that what drove this outrageous attack was their position on foreign policy. More to the point, their position on the Ukraine crisis because supposedly, allegedly, they have some sort of relationship with a man in Russia that the United States is accusing of meddling in U.S. internal affairs. Now, as far as we know, despite this uh, outrageous attack, uh, flash grenades, battering rams, handcuffs. There are no criminal charges directed thus far at those who were rousted in Florida and in St. Louis. But this may be an auguring of things to come. And if so, let us immediately put on the record that this is once again evidentiary of the hypocrisy and double standard of U.S. imperialism. Uh, as we speak, we know that Viktor Orban, who is a favorite of the Republican right wing, has headed to Dallas to speak at a conservative political action conference. There have been many trips abroad of the Republican right to Hungary, to Budapest specifically, to sup at the table of Mr. Orban. And by the way, according to specialists, when a close aide to Mr. Orban recently resigned from his inner circle, the reason was that Mr. Orban had lifted rhetoric from Hungarian fascists of the 1930s. But according to analysts, this was because Mr. Orban, the consummate cynic and opportunist, thought that this would appeal to his doubtless audience. Now, that's a sobering thought here in the United States, which likes to preen and posture as a so-called paragon of democracy. And that's not even to mention what's happening on the electoral front. We know about how the Israeli lobby has intervened to defeat
0: in Democratic
4: primaries Nina Turner in Ohio, Donna Edwards in Maryland. They're now going after, believe it or not, a Jewish man, speaking of Congressman and 11 of Michigan because supposedly he's not sufficiently enthusiastic about Israel's rapacious policies towards the Palestinians. And so they want to defeat him too. So the message to we of the United States is only the right wing is allowed to be internationalist. Black people in particular are not allowed to be globally minded. They want us to stick to this domestic knitting and not to organize aggressively to halt this spreading fascist wave that's inevitably reaching these shores. And if we are so dumb as to follow that demented advice, we will be doing a disservice not only to our besieged community, we will be doing a disservice to the memory of Frederick Douglass, who campaigned vigorously in London at a time in the 1840s when London and Washington were at Swords Point. It will be doing a disservice to Paul Wilson, who, of course, reached out his hand of friendship and solidarity to Moscow at a time when the United States was saying that Moscow was the embodiment of the evil empire. I dare say that what Robson and Douglas did, it tended to bear fruit and dividends for our besieged communities. And if we do not follow their path, we will only be dooming ourselves.
2: I'm glad you brought up the Israeli government, the Zionist government's influence in our elections, because that's exactly where I was going with the uh, urban empowerment action pack that Bakari Sellers is the front person for. I'm trying to understand, and I, and I ask this in all seriousness, what's the difference between what uh, the Uhuru movement is being alleged to be doing with O'Malley Yeshatella as its front person and what Bakari Sellers is doing for the Urban Empowerment Action Pack? I, I don't understand what the differences are. So this is hypocrisy at its highest. Well, oh, and the other thing is that in all the articles on this that I've read, I still haven't really seen them explain what propaganda they are promoting. Apparently, allegedly, the propaganda
4: is to be against racism in the United States. That's <laughs> Oh. The propaganda. It's like the worst days of the Red Scare. Recall, or perhaps you gentlemen are not old enough, but certainly I am, I recall a time when— If Russia said that it was against tooth decay and you were against tooth decay, that meant that you were purportedly some sort of Russian agent. So in 2022, if you are against anti-black racism and Moscow opposes anti-black racism, that means that you are purportedly an agent of Moscow. And what we need to realize And I think the difference between uh, Bakari Sellers and Omalia Yesatella, the head of the African People's Socialist Party, is evident. Uh, That is to say, uh, Chairman Yesutella is coming from the left. Uh, Bakari Sellers is coming from the right. And as noted, you are allowed more latitude, to put it euphemistically, in this country if you take right-wing positions. And to that end, let me say, that to the best of my knowledge and understanding, that on the plane with Speaker Pelosi that's headed for a rendezvous with destiny in Taiwan, as we are told, perhaps worse, is chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Congressman Gregory Meeks of South Queen, who is trying, as you know, to penalize and pulverize African nations who do not go along with sanctions against Moscow because of the Ukrainian intervention. And so, of course, Congressman Meeks will be blessed with added campaign donations, assuming that his plane is not forced down on Chinese soil and he is detained indefinitely. As a matter of fact, to be frank with you, I hope that the Chinese comrades will uh, give him some time to cool off and perhaps uh, reduce his hot-headed nature uh, with a spell uh, under Chinese detention, uh, that could be something that would be a boon for world peace, certainly a boon for his community in Southeast Queens, which he is neglecting, not only neglecting, but is sabotaging by joining in to this harebrained venture by Speaker Pelosi, which, if we are not careful, could easily lead to World War
0: Three. You know, there's another article where they're talking about the, uh, what they were allegedly involved in. And this is where it gets fuzzy. They go, go on to, in this article to talk about, you know, the Russians interfering in, in the elections. And they, they say that this organization ran a candidate, Jesse Neville, <laughs> who got 1.67 percent of the vote. And this is where it becomes preposterous. We are to believe— That the Russian government felt if only we could get 1.67 percent of the vote in the St. Petersburg, Florida's mayoral race, we could somehow turn the tide against the United States empire. That's the other part of it. You know, it's like the uh, original Russiagate thing. It sounds like there's something there. But every time you turn over a rock and look beneath it, you don't find anything. And this is the same thing. One point six. Basically, they exercised their constitutional right to run for office. Dr. Horn. Really
2: quickly, Garland, they said he got one point six seven percent of the vote. And they said something along the lines of and that was really odd. The fact that the guy got 1.6% of the vote, that was odd for him.
0: Dr. Horn. Well,
2: I think that
4: understandably we're making light, to use your word, Garla, of this <laughs> preposterous situation, but it's deadly serious. Uh, we should realize that what U.S. imperialism traditionally does domestically is that they'll try to establish a president by picking on a group that they deem to be unpopular, perhaps marginal. And then, after establishing that president, they come for the rest of us. At the top of my remarks, I mentioned a number of entities with which I'm associated with. It would not surprise me at all. If next on the hit list would be, for example, Pacifica Radio, uh, which has an affiliate, as you know, in Washington, D.C., and affiliates across the country, uh, whose broadcast featuring myself uh, could be seen by Washington as echoing so-called Russian propaganda. And certainly, if I were a betting man, uh, I would have to wager that there might be a battering lamb showing up at the residence of Dr. Wilmer Leon <laughs> and Mr. Garland Nixon sooner rather than later with flash grenades and tear gas,
5: handcuffs
4: at the ready. And so I understand why you gentlemen are raising alarm about this terrible situation, because we need to ask for whom does the bell toll? The bell, bell tolls for thee, the bell tolls for me, the bell tolls for we.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, historian, and researcher. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Secretary Blinken has participated in the first call with Sergey Lavrov since February. Also, Ukraine attacks Crimea on Navy Day, and Russia names the U.S. as its principal threat. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
6: Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour.
0: Reuters reports President Vladimir Putin on Sunday signed a new naval doctrine which casts the United States as Russia's main rival. Mark Sloboda, your thoughts?
6: Yeah. Okay. so, I mean, this was done in the context uh, one of Russia's annual Navy Day which is an important holiday, particularly in Russia's naval cities, which would be Sevastopol, um, St. Petersburg, Vladivostok, and, and to a lesser extent, Marmonsk. Um, and um, it is um, also when the Russian president signed a new updated naval doctrine. And he was talking specifically uh, about the U.S., Uh, attempt to dominate the world's oceans, which I don't think anyone can call into any question. (laughs) Uh, I mean, the U.S. likes to parade uh, its military um, fleets uh, off of other countries' coasts under the thinly veiled guise of – uh, freedom of navigation exercises. But the minute that anyone else's ships even looks like they might be entering their hemisphere, it is suddenly a huge major security threat to the United States and and so on. Uh, so, um, you know, they make pretty clear, uh, you know, from either side, uh, their use of their navy and it is the most powerful navy in the world at current time um to to dominate the world's oceans and and russia is you know when you're talking coming down from the united states and then probably china with the new premise uh of its uh, new aircraft carriers they're working on the third one now that that china is is Quickly building a blue water navy that is capable of challenging the U.S. globally – not globally, but uh, locally off their own coast, right, and in the South China Sea. Uh, Russia does does not have the same capability having only one aircraft carrier and that being – uh, not in the best of condition. Um, the Admiral Kuznetsov is an old Soviet, um, and Russia has instead concentrated on a very powerful and formidable submarine fleet uh, for both ballistic missiles and for firing cruise missiles, um, and um, a, a smaller uh, fleet of ships um uh in terms of size not you know capital class not aircraft carrier size but capable of firing cruise missiles and they have demonstrated the effects of that repeatedly in both syria and ukraine regularly hitting ukraine uh from uh the caspian sea from from ships um that they have in the the caspian sea which is really kind of an a giant inland lake um and Russia is not a global power to threaten the U.S. in the seas, except in in the course of submarines. So therefore, of course, the U.S. is an extremely significant threat uh, when it comes to uh, its ability to use its navy to to say isolate other countries or to project force, uh, you know, in basically every corner of the world.
2: Uh, This article says that the main threat to Russia, the doctrine says, is the strategic policy of the U.S. to dominate the world's oceans and the movement of the NATO military alliance closer towards Russia's borders. It also says guided by this doctrine, the Federation will firmly and resolutely defend its natural interests in the world's oceans. Two things I I draw from that. One is, and I think this is some of what you've been speaking to, the defensive posture as opposed to an offensive posture that Russia has been taking for quite a while and seems to be continuing to take, as well as it's important, I think, to always assess these things by what is the strategy of the country in question, because you just mentioned that Russia is not building a lot of aircraft carriers. It's put its money in submarines. So you've got to look at where they're putting their money And how efficient that strategy will be for what it is that country is trying to implement. Hopefully, that makes sense.
6: Yeah. So, I mean, the first part, uh, I would say, yes, it is overall an extremely defensive strategy, right? This is this is not meant to be a blue water uh, navy to challenge, you know, the hegemon. um, uh, With you know the sole exception of the strategic deterrent of ballistic missile submarines, which again are are really. When when viewed for their intended use, a a defensive purpose of themselves. Um, But um, Russia is primarily concerned with the defense of, of two areas which they see a threat. There are others, but but primarily the Black Sea. Um, which is an increasing area of uh, U.S. interest uh, uh, because of the events uh, in Ukraine for, for the last eight years of their successful geopolitical flipping of the country, um, and also in the Baltic Sea, uh, particularly with uh, Sweden and Finland um, uh, joining NATO. Um, uh, Russia has a rather narrow path uh, out through the Baltic Sea, surrounded on all sides uh, by enemies, and that also threatens sea transit to the Russian exclave of Kaliningrad. Uh, So that is a very tight and very hot focus of Russian uh, naval and air defense.
0: I did want to ask you about this. Apparently, there's some uh, drone explosion or something that hit in Crimea during uh, Navy Day. Are you familiar with that? Yes.
6: Um, so, um, again, Sevastopol is one of Russia's big naval cities. It is the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet. Um, I've, I've been there. I have family there. Uh, so I'm quite familiar with it and how important Navy Day is, particularly locally there. Um, and uh, the the evening before... Uh, the festivities uh, uh, were to take place this year, Um, a small commercial drone containing a small – Uh, explosive, uh, much of it uh, being described as makeshift, was flown into the courtyard of the Black Sea Fleet's naval headquarters there. Um, It exploded uh, and some five to six people received light injuries as a result. But because of the the threat of follow on, um, this was uh, uh, it caused the uh, Russian government to to cancel the festivities in Sevastopol. Um, this is almost assuredly a Kiev regime saboteur group. Um, it's no surprise. I mean, they still have them in Kherson, and and it is uh, certainly possible to um, infiltrate uh, Crimea um and uh they they obviously couldn't get anything more formidable in but they received a bit of a PR and psychological victory uh with you know forcing Russia to to cancel their Navy day festivities there it's not really a military show of strength but uh, you know it, it it does have a bit of psychological punch the idea that that they, can however ineffectually, you know, strike anywhere. That's the idea they're trying to to bring in. Uh, the uh, Kiev regime, uh, Zelensky's presidential advisor, Alexei Aristovich uh suggested that this drone uh evaded a russian air defenses um and and that russian air defenses are weak and incapable and this is of course ridiculous because this is a small commercial drone it doesn't have that distance it was obviously uh used locally and aristovich's comments are more again of a, of a psychologically trolling nature and a bit of disinformation
2: Blinken holds first call with Lavrov since February. Ceasefire is not discussed. During a news conference on Friday, Blinken announced that he had a call with Sergei Lavrov on a potential bilateral prisoner exchange. I find it interesting and and really quite troubling that this is the first conversation that they've had. One would think if, particularly if the United States were trying to bring peace to the region, which we know they're not that uh, they'd be on the phone trying to uh, trying to get some folks to to the table and get some issues resolved but talk about this and the prisoner exchange that was the highlight of the conversation
6: yeah, I mean, it's quite obvious the U.S. has no intentions of of pushing right. uh, its clients in Kiev. Quite the opposite. In fact, you've had uh, a, a former um, member of Zelensky's own Servant of the People Party come forward and said that Zelensky was actually prepared uh, to to um, uh, you know. Conclude a a a peace arrangement um, uh, prior to to the outbreak of the intervention, um, and that uh, the U.S. and the U.K. told him, no. I mean, <laughs> that that so. they wanted they wanted a war. Uh, so that that's really no surprise uh, there. Um, I think that this is perhaps a signal that the U.S. is attempting to reopen diplomatic relations um i mean of of course it's very important them from a pr uh gesture to to get uh griner uh the uh, druggy basketball player back uh but um the timing of it uh, and the timing also that, that, uh, Biden has suddenly announced that he's interested in restarting, uh, nuclear, uh, control talks, uh, um, uh armament talks with Russia. Um, that, that is kind of like the last fallback of dialogue. Uh, and that the fact that that is being brought forward and this is being brought forward, uh, the, I think the U S is attempting at least to stop the diplomatic slide down towards further tensions and reestablish at least some level of communication.
0: Oh well and and actually if this thing kicks up in Taiwan they're just going to call the EU and say never mind it, you guys can handle yes. that we're busy now. Yeah yeah. I mean literally. Literally
6: Yeah, the EU uh, politicians, uh, the technocrats are extremely worried about that possibility that they will simply be left holding the Ukraine bag that the U.S. has helped push them into um, and leaving them in a very bad situation uh, where uh, Taiwan and China would suddenly become a huge priority. Uh, It all remains to be seen on whether it will be brought to some type of uh, explosive moment, uh, by, um, Nancy Pelosi, um, insisting, uh, on, uh, visiting, uh, China's Taiwan, um, to, you know, of course, uh, you know, continue the spark of separatist sentiment there because it serves us geopolitical interests. I, I have no doubt. I do not think that china would uh, shoot down hor plane i don't think that's a possibility but there are other methods they would might try to escort hor plane in showing that they have control uh, a force over the area and viewing that as some type uh, of humiliation although it must be noted that the cia did shoot down Uh, the uh, Chinese foreign minister's plane in the 1950s uh, going from Indonesia to Beijing. He actually happened to not be on board. It's not clear whether uh, they got some word of this. But uh, certainly China does remember that. And they have a very long uh, memory, kind of like an elephant.
0: Yeah, they remember that Serbia bombing. Uh, One minute real quick. Have you heard about this Norwegian diplomat who said she hates Russians? One minute.
6: Yeah, this is a a consulate member. She was uh, uh, at a hotel and uh, they weren't uh, uh, cleaning her room quickly enough so she could check in. She responded with a long rant, with a lot of vulgarity and swearing and concluded it with screaming, I hate Russians. Of course, this was all on camera. The Norwegian government has backed away from her statements, said it doesn't recommend their point of view. And it's almost certain that she'll be farmed out to another
0: country in the near future. Well, yeah, certainly. They would have reacted the same if she'd have said, I hate Jews or black people yeah. or gay well, people mean, or something. That would have been.
6: Let's be honest. She said what they all think. But the quiet part out loud. Yeah. She's not supposed to say it out loud and, you know, in public. But, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we we were talking with Mark. Well, we got to laugh. Why do we laugh at this stuff? I guess we got to laugh. Mark Sloboda is a Moscow based international relations security analyst. Follow him on Twitter. But you can't follow me, really, because I'm locked out of Twitter for six days. Uh, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Carla Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Iran has announced that it has the ability to make a nuclear bomb, but no desire to do so. And the Lebanon-Israel offshore gas dispute could turn into a kinetic war. Also, Iran border guards have clashed with members of the Taliban, and the Ukrainian-Green debacle continues. Joining us now to discuss this and other articles we have, Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Leith welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. Well, this grain stuff out of Ukraine has been a mess. But now, a grain shipment left Ukraine on Monday morning headed to Lebanon. The first such departure since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February. Due to arrive in Istanbul on Tuesday, the ship left under a new safe passage agreement between Moscow and Kiev, brokered last month by Turkey and the UN. Uh, I know Lebanon's had some really tough times lately. Your thoughts on this latest turn of events, Latham Roof.
7: Well, this is uh, you know surprising, given that fact that uh, just a few days before that, the Ukrainian embassy in uh, Beirut uh, demanded that the Lebanese authorities confiscate a Syrian uh, grain um, ship that uh, landed in, por- in port uh, of Tarablos, Tripoli, uh, bringing... Uh, wheat and uh, other grains to Syria, uh, claiming that that wheat uh, that has been sold by Russia uh, is uh, has been stolen and pirated from Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, to see that the first shipment coming out of Ukraine after these uh, threats that are stopping uh, grain shipments to the region, um, that, that the fact that the first ship coming out of Ukraine from Odessa port is going to end up in Lebanon. I wonder how much these two stories are connected. Uh, but as we see, uh, Russia is trying its best to make sure no country in the world is affected uh, with shortages of uh, wheats and uh, wheat and grains because of the war in Ukraine.
2: What's the condition of the Lebanese port since the explosion? Is the port in a condition to where it'll be able to receive the grain, store the grain,
7: and distribute the grain that it that it received. I mean, I'm glad that you asked this because yesterday, actually, there was a fire in the old grain silos in uh, the port of Beirut, that finally brought down a huge section of them. Um, you know, since the explosion in the in the port, uh, those grain silos, uh, as many remember, were partially destroyed, and uh, there's a pile of uh, wheat there that. Uh, Every once in a while when there is uh, enough sun catches a fire. And uh, so, yes, uh, the port of Beirut is not ready to uh, accept shipments of wheat. But the port of Tripoli, where, as I mentioned just before, the uh, shipment of uh, wheat coming to Syria uh, was uh, port, you know, docked. This is now a has enough silo of granaries to take on these uh, shipments. Um, And the issue that looking forward uh, for the region in terms of stability of these essential grains, the only solution is the liberation of East and North Syria. Uh, The breadbasket of uh, the whole Levant that the Americans have been looting all that wheat and exporting it to the black market. If that wheat of Syria is uh, comes back to the uh, holdings of the people of Syria, then we can feed the whole region without needing to worry about what's happening in Ukraine and Russia.
0: I did want to ask you also, there's another big Lebanon story. The Lebanon-Israel dispute over offshore gas fields seems to be coming to a head. Apparently there's escalating tensions and there's been recently some statements made by the head of um, Hezbollah. What's happening with that particular dispute?
7: Oh, there was an interview with the uh, Secretary General of Hezbollah, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah on Al-Mayadeen in commemoration of 40 years since the creation of the organization. And in this interview, uh, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah said that they are ready to basically sink all offshore facilities that the Zionist colony has by uh, September 1st, if the Lebanese uh, people are not allowed to extract their own gas and oil from their own waters, and if the Zionists uh, loot some of the gas that is in the disputed waters. So we have already an ultimatum. Um, He announced that there's 150,000 guided missiles uh, that are ready to hit all targets in Israel, and uh, yesterday, the uh, Hezbollah released a video, which uh, was a dramatic thing that the Zionist media has has been stuck on since yesterday. Uh, it, it showed uh, the uh, uh, gas extraction platform in the Kirish disputed field, uh, along with the two uh, gas extraction ships that are working along with this extraction platform, uh, all through the scopes of. A, a surface-to-sea missile system, the Yakhnot missile that uh, sank the Israeli frigate in 2006, uh, meaning um, with we could see the coordinates, the exact coordinates of all those assets that are to be sunk, and uh, which means um, the uh, actual assets, the military assets that Hezbollah has, these these missiles have been um, taken to the correct location they need to be. They have been installed, their bays have been opened, and all they are waiting for is uh, an order to target. Uh, and uh, that meant that the uh, American negotiator, Hushstein, uh came running um, to Lebanon. Uh, today, he's, he's now already in Lebanon, trying to uh, save uh, the moment before uh, all hell broke loose. And, and what's
2: your overall thought? Is he going to be able to stop this, or do you think that Israel is going to back down, or is the attack imminent? Well,
7: look, we're talking about the same part of the empire that is right now poking China in Taiwan for a a war with the visit of Pelosi. We're talking about the same people that are in charge that uh, led us to the war in ukraine with the interference uh, there and 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 raising the nazis uh, poking the you know the russian bear to to response so you know i don't know if uh, there is any more sanity left in the elite within the imperial order uh, because uh, anyone that is sane will understand that uh, if uh, the Lebanese people are not given their full rights in terms of their uh, extraction of gas and oil from the uh, waters uh, of the Mediterranean. Then the Zionist colony is going to burn, and the whole. That means there will be no extraction of gas and and to to supply Europe for uh, its winter now with the cutoff of uh, Russian uh, gas. So ultimately. If, the, if there is any sanity left in the Zionist colony and its uh, Washington, D.C., masters, uh, they would be uh, rushing right now to give uh, li- Lebanon everything that Hezbollah asked for.
0: Apparently, Iran's nuclear chief said on Monday that the country, and this is something that I figured already, has the technical ability p- to build an atomic bomb but has no such an intention on agenda. So and, – and I figured that – I mean this is a highly technical society and they can, you know, refine – apparently they can refine uranium as pure as they want to. But uh, they've said they don't they don't want one. But let me add this, Laith. Two weeks ago, the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States said the same thing. They released a statement saying they have no evidence that the Iranians have a military atomic program. Latham Roof.
7: Yeah, definitely. Uh, You know, this statement being made right now by the Iranian government is to uh, remind uh, the Europeans and the Americans that uh, if really Iran had the, uh, you know, decision, had made the decision to create an atomic bomb, it can. And, you know, because as we saw over the last few days, the European, uh, you know, governments have been trying to shift the blame on of uh, the fact that there has been no progress on the GCPOA or a, a return to the JCPOA. Uh, To shift that blame on Iran. And Iran has been coming out very strong in its statements against the, uh, you know, the Europeans who are acting like uh, lapdogs and uh, running behind their master. Um, And this statement is um, a clear indication that, uh, you know, in the situation that there is no deal and uh, the Zionist Attack Iran as has they been threatening and of course, I don't think the Zionists are in any shape to do So as we have just discussed, they're not even in shape to face Hezbollah But if the Zionists do the illogical Insane thing and they have known to be insane. That's how you become a Zionist. You have to be insane Uh, then uh, Iran is ready to build this nuclear bomb to defend itself
2: and what about the strategy behind the statements being made and the timing behind the statements being made since that was one of the ultimate objectives of the JCPOA was to prevent Iran from doing that?
7: I think the objective is to put pressure on the Europeans uh, so they can maybe um, sway their masters in D.C. to uh, re-sign on to the JCPOA. But uh, looking at how the United States is dealing all across the world, Uh, I'm starting to believe that the United States is intentionally uh, starting the, you know, the conflicts that we see both in Ukraine and one that is developing in Taiwan and one that is, you know, uh, developing right now in Western Asia. And that's specifically to create a ring of fire around Asia to cut it off from trading with the rest of the world. The United States knows that its economy is over. And the European economies are over. And the only way to force the rest of the world to buy the really badly built and very expensive products of the West is that they don't have they don't have any other option to buy from. And therefore, I think uh, an overview of all these activities across Asia, will you know indicate that the united states is trying to ring the whole continent with fires to cut it off from trading with the rest of the world
0: last but not least have there have been much discussion about what's happening on the iranian afghanistan border i understand there's been some shooting some instability what do you know about that
7: i mean this is a volatile situation for iran it has known intention or need to create any conflict with, uh, the Taliban government in Afghanistan. Because as, as we just discussing right now, it has a possible war coming on the way uh, on its uh, Western front. So uh, to see these skirmishes, I wonder how much uh, intelligence is being put uh, to force this. And, you know, because Afghanistan at the current moment, the uh, is practically surviving on the handouts of Iran in terms of gas and, and oil and, and other services that the Iranian government is, is giving freely to the Iranian people along with uh, giving housing to over 2 million Iranians, uh, sorry Afghanis in Iran and so forth. Uh, I hope none of this uh, develops in any other m- more intense direction. Uh, Because uh, the Afghani people cannot
0: uh, afford to have an an enmity with Iran. Based on what I hear there, would I be wrong in suspecting there could be outside entities working to destabilize that relationship?
7: I definitely, that's my first feeling when I uh,
0: read the news. Thanks a lot there, Laith. We've been talking with Laith Maruth. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Evo Morales has called for a global campaign to eliminate NATO. Also, the U.K. continues to withhold access to Venezuela's gold reserves, ruling in favor of Juan Guaido. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Dan Kavalik. He's a writer, author, and a human rights lawyer. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. In an interview with British journalist Matt Kennard at his home in El Tropico, a small town four hours from Coca Bamba in the heart of the Amazon rainforest, former Bolivian President Evo Morales called for an international campaign to eliminate NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. According to Morales, this campaign should explain to people worldwide that NATO is ultimately the United States. It is not a guarantee for humanity or for life. Your thoughts, Dan Kabalik.
8: Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, what you're seeing in Ukraine has been cultivated and provoked by NATO for years, and again, mostly by the U.S., which is the uh, leader of NATO. And, in fact, uh, Europe, which is following the dictates of the United States with these sanctions against Russia, uh, they're going to suffer greatly economically because of this again this is really the u.s pushing these provocations and of course now we have nancy pelosi who's going to taiwan apparently and you know now possibly provoking some sort of conflict with china and in latin america we have to remember colombia uh is a uh, nato partner and uh, the u.s and colombia under the guise of NATO, conducted joint uh, military operations in the Caribbean earlier this year, uh, including with the use of a nuclear submarine, which violates the agreement of the regional countries to have nuclear-free zones there. So NATO is a menace, and it should go.
0: Here's a perfect example. This is from Deutsche Welle. A NATO for the Middle East. Rumors of a new Middle Eastern military alliance is flying. Here's another one. Can the Quad become an Indo-Pacific NATO? So now the shores of the North Atlantic wash up on the shores of Lebanon, wash up on the shores of China, wash up on the shores of France, I mean, and they, apparently the North Atlantic Treaty organization, it's exactly what Evo Morales said, has become a world organization that is used as a tool. I've always said this. It's a tool so that the U.S. can have an umbrella organization to bring all of the European countries together and assume power of attorney for their foreign policy. Dan?
8: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it is pretty incredible that, you know, At a time when this conflict has erupted in Ukraine, in large part because of NATO expansion, right, and because of NATO's refusal to agree that Ukraine would not become part of NATO, NATO is only expanding further, right? It's going to now uh, include Sweden and Finland for the first time. And as you say, now it's going to expand way beyond the Atlantic to the Pacific. And so, yeah, it is going to be the global – Uh, military alliance, again, really to advance U.S.
0: imperialism. And the other thing that he talks about is that NATO is basically, he said, basically what happened, and he was one of the most successful presidents in Latin American history, closed down a U.S. military base in Bolivia, expelled the CIA and the DEA. But they had tremendous economic advancements under him. And ultimately, there was a coup that the U.S. and the U.K. clearly were behind. Janine Añez, she lost in 2020, but Janine Añez was installed as a coup president. She was involved in slaughtering many, many innocent protesters, and ultimately she's been um, found guilty and sentenced to 10 years in prison. So what do you think about his argument that the U.S. is basically, and NATO, their coups are against economic models other than neoliberalism?
8: Well, yes, uh, against economic models that are different, and frankly against any independent state that stands in the way of the West uh, gaining access to their natural resources. In the case of Bolivia, Bolivia has some of the largest lithium uh, reserves in the world, lithium being crucial to uh, electric cars, anything powered with lithium batteries, computers. Uh, and in fact, recently, the um, the head of U.S. Southcom uh, said that uh, the U.S. needs to maintain its influence in Latin America because of its incredible resources. And she did single out Lithium as one of those. So it's not even just that you have to have an alternative social order. It's just that even if you have any um, desire to use your own resources for your people's own benefit, you're seen as a threat.
0: Another uh, interesting story, you know, after. And and here's what's interesting. The U.S. said Juan Guaido is the president of Venezuela, even though he's never received a single vote for president and he's not even involved in his own former party has kicked him out. Okay, the U.K. has refused to give Venezuela the gold in their sovereign wealth fund. The Venezuela has gone back to court. And even after the U.S. went to Venezuela to negotiate with Nick. Maduro as the president of the country, the U.K. still holds that Juan Guaido is the president of the country. It's pretty clear what's going on here. Your thoughts, Dan?
8: Yeah, no, you're just seeing imperial theft on a massive scale, right? So you have the gold stolen by the Bank of England. You have Sitco, uh, Venezuela's U.S. oil company, stolen by the United States. Meanwhile, the U.S. stole, what was it, $7 billion from Afghanistan, um, and has now stolen billions of dollars from Russia, Um, you know, we live in a lawless world now where uh, the West, and particularly the U.S., can just steal whatever assets they want from other countries.
0: Yes. And the other part of it, if you look at it here, to me, I think you have to compare this to the Julian Assange case going on because things were looking kind of good at one point. And ultimately, the court just said that they're going to rule that the courts are going to go along with number 10 Downing Street physician, that they're going to act as one what they call the one voice doctrine. So it sounds to me that what they're saying is, look, we're not going by the facts of the case. We're just simply going to say, you know what, if the leaders in our government decided this way, we're going to ignore the facts of the case. And we'll go along with what the leaders of our government said, which says this is not a any kind of a democracy or a democratic process. I think that completely discredits the court in the U.K. Dan.
8: Of course. I mean, at this point, there's very few countries in the world that recognize Juan Guaido. The U.N. doesn't recognize Juan Guaido. The OAS doesn't even recognize Juan Guaido. There's no legal basis for him to be president. Uh, As you say, he not only never received a vote, he never even ran for president. Um, And he holds no elected office at the moment at all. So uh, this is just a joke, Um, And it would be funny, except for the fact that it has these real-world consequences, which means that billions of dollars in assets of the Venezuelan people that could be used for health care, for food, for medicines, is not being used for that. Instead, it's being stolen.
0: I did want to ask you about a couple of things while you're here. Let's start with this. I understand that you are headed to Colombia for the presidential inauguration. What are your thoughts on the upcoming inauguration, what it means for the region, what it means for Colombia, and foreign policy in general?
8: Well, it's one of the most exciting events for me um, that I've seen historically in many years. You have the first leftist president ever elected in Colombia, Gustavo Petro. His running mate, Francia Marquez, is the first Afro-descendant to be elected to that position. And, um, you know, they promise great change, particularly to uh, redistribute wealth. Colombia is one of the most uh, inequitable societies in the world, and they want to change that. They want to help the poor and uh, dislocated people. They actually have about 8 million internally displaced people there, more than any other country on Earth. So there's a lot of social problems that have to be dealt with. They want to deal with those problems. Meanwhile, we're, we'll see if they are going to also challenge uh, Colombia's NATO status, challenge the U.S. Uh, military presence in Colombia. It'll be very interesting. It's very exciting. And uh, there'll be a lot of uh, uh, leaders from the region who will be cheering him on.
0: You know, I'm watching TV recently, and I keep seeing this. They're saying, yes, the guy who won is a former guerrilla. He's a former terrorist. He's a former this. What do we need to know about the new president and his history and why they're making these accusations against him?
8: Well, he's an interesting guy. Yes, he was a former guerrilla. I mean, Colombia is a horribly uh, inequitable society. It's a very repressive and violent society, and it it has inspired various guerrilla groups to rise up against it. Uh Gustavo Petro uh, was a member and leader of the M-19 guerrillas, but he laid down his arms, arms pursuant to a peace agreement, and uh, he eventually was elected senator, held that position for a number of years. He was then elected mayor of Bogota, the biggest city in Colombia, held that position for some time. He now won the presidency, so, I mean, he's totally legitimate. Uh, he... he is able to do these things pursuant to the laws of Colombia, and uh, he has done it peacefully. And so uh, they can say anything they want about his past. But, you know, I believe it was Thomas Jefferson that says, you know, that once a government, you know, uh, no longer represents its people, they have a right to rise up, and he did that.
0: You know, one of the big other concerns is that the U.S. basically used Colombia as a staging ground for, I mean, for literal attacks, literal assassination attempts against the president of Venezuela. There's been a lot of fighting and all kind of infiltration on the Colombia-Venezuela border. I understand there is some work to, you know, try to straighten that out. Now, your thoughts about Colombia being used as a tool of the U.S. empire in South America and particularly against Venezuela?
8: Yeah, well, it has been used in that way. They've, they've been engaged in many provocative acts, particularly on the border area there uh, with Venezuela. Uh, I understand that, that Gustavo Petro has called uh, Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela, uh, to talk about those sorts of things. I think he wants to stop that. I don't think he wants Colombia to be used in that way. Uh, but I think he's going to need a lot of international support to allow him to stop that. Because he has a very strong military that's backed by the United States, that has its own um, desires, its own motives for doing things, and he's going to have to fight that military, and it could be very dangerous for him. So. It's one reason all eyes should be on Colombia.
0: Lastly, I understand you just recently returned from Nicaragua, that they had some celebrations. If you could, you know, give us a bit about what the celebration was about in your experience.
8: Yeah, it was the July 19th celebration. This is an annual celebration of the overthrow of the U.S.-backed dictator Anastasio Somoza on July 19th, 1979. It was a real David and Goliath story. You know, uh, Nicaraguans armed, uh, in many cases, with very primitive weapons, bricks, stones, handmade rifles, um, defeated a very heavily armed uh, dictatorship in the Somoza dictatorship, which killed that dictatorship, killed 50,000 Nicaraguans in the last year of its uh, existence, mostly by aerial bombing. And uh, so every year they celebrate this. And I've I've been to a few of these celebrations and I've never seen so much enthusiasm. Um, People were very excited. In fact, had been celebrating for weeks. There were marches for weeks throughout the country in celebration. And it seems to me that that revolution is still very, very strong. In fact, a recent poll shows the government has uh, around 70 percent support of the people and that seemed reflected in the celebration
0: we got about a minute left did you hear much discussion about what's happening on ukraine and about the say new kind of world order that's forming while you're in nicaragua we got one minute
8: well yes i mean uh, nicaragua was one of the first countries truthfully to support russia um with a special operation in ukraine uh since that special operation began in february the president daniel ortega actually announced that he would allow Russian troops into the country to help defend the country, in part from NATO, which again, uh, Colombia is now part of. Um, So yeah, it's on everyone's mind. Nicaragua is now very much looking east towards not only Russia, but China and Iran for assistance in the face of multiple sanctions that the U.S. has leveled against them. And so, uh, you know, these eastern countries will become more and more important
0: for Nicaragua. We've been talking with Dan Kowalik. He's a writer, author, and a human rights lawyer. He's got a lot of books out there. They're easy to find. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Withholding accounts from the bank accounts of rival nation is hurting credibility of Western financial institutions. Also, Peter Schiff argues that the U.S. is on the edge of an inflationary depression. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Dr. Linwood Tawheed. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. Dr. Talheed, welcome back to the critical hour. Thank you, sir. Our first article starts off. Love him or hate him. But stockbroker and gold proponent Peter Schiff does make a very compelling observation. Consumers are paying for huge government via the inflation tax. And the only way to slow down runaway consumer prices. You're going to be shocked to hear this, Dr. (laughs) tallheed is to aggressively hike rates, and strongly cut back on fiscal spending. Dr. Taheed. that sounds like just a typical uh, neoliberal-slash-libertarian policy, but he's right about the issue with our economic woes. Your thoughts?
5: Well, it, it, uh, gold bugs always interest me in how contradictory they can be. Uh, gold bug being a person who believes that if the uh, financial system of the country collapses, then you should have all of your 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 money in gold, as if if you have a bar bar of gold that a farmer has a loaf of bread. You can you can buy a loaf of bread with a bar of gold. Uh the farmer will have to eat too, so uh he has no reason to sell. Uh like I said, it's it's better to have uh, food in a time of no money than money in a time of <laughs> no food. Uh gold you you cannot eat gold bars. But okay, but on, on this issue you know the conclusion that he's reaching is that we are uh, going into an inflationary depression, as opposed to a recession. And and I'm not I'm not um, um, uh, going to contradict him there. I think this recession is going to be very deep if the if the uh, government continues on with policy and if the Fed continues to raise rates. On the other hand, he is blaming the current res- recession. Uh, excuse me, current inflation. On government spending, on deficit spending, and therefore inflation helps the government to uh, to monetize that, that deficit. Um, deficit spending in the past, whenever the, the government has gone into deficit spending, uh, we've had uh, movement forward in the economy, uh, most of that time without inflation. And when the government pulls back on on uh, spending. Uh, the biggest example was in the, at the end of the um, Clinton administration. Uh, we went into recession when, when the Clinton administration created a surplus. Uh, so, so the problem here is that this inflation is not a demand-driven inflation. It's not caused by having too much money. It's caused by having too little supply. And so the supply problem, of course, is is not a demand problem, but it it can eventually end up being a demand problem because weakening supply raises prices. And then when the Fed increases interest rates to bring uh, prices down, then that further weakens supply. It does weaken demand and further weakens supply. And so we have a decrease in both supply and demand. That is uh, a recession into a depression. And so this is not a demand driven problem. It's not a government spending too much money problem. It's a not having uh not spending money in the right places. If if the federal government were, were spending money to increase supply, uh generally then we could work ourselves out of this inflation. It's interesting that uh, you know, we just uh, had a, a bill to give uh was it something like eighty billion dollars to the microchip industry. Uh, That would be a good thing in terms of increasing the supply of microchips. I think what should happen, of course, is that that $80 billion should be an investment by the American people, and we should get the dividends from that.
0: I would also suspect that when the companies get that money, they're going to buy back their own stock. That's just my guess, that they're not going to actually use and that's the next problem. And then the government, knowing that the government won't hold them accountable, because we've seen that time and again. The government last year, I, there's actually, and any, people can look this up, the U.S. passed a Countering China Act that was $250 billion. Now they just passed a Countering China Technology Act, same thing as last year, $280 billion. That's Five hundred and thirty billion dollars, over a half a trillion dollars in a period of one year, supposedly to counter China. It seems to me like just another money laundering operation, because when they give this money out, they don't monitor it. And these countries buy back their own stock. They artificially drive up the stock market, which is negative for the economy. And of course, they don't even use the money for what it was intended for. Dr. Tajik.
5: Yes, 80 billion dollars out uh, from the from the Treasury to the uh, uh, to chip makers just simply replaces the 80 billion dollars that they have to use for operating expenses. Uh, they would like to have used that 80 billion dollars to buy back their stock, but they had to pay their employees, and so so now they get 80 billion that they can they can use to well, if they use the 80 billion to pay to pay their employees, but use the other 80 billion to buy back their stocks. You can't really say they're using this additional money to buy back their stock. So you can't make it illegal. It's very difficult to do that with, with just money. And, but, I, I, but I agree. That's what they're going to do. They're going to buy back their stock.
0: Now, one of the things that he argues, of course, he gets into some traditional libertarianism, like the cost of borrowing should be set by free markets. Let me ask you this. I got to ask you about this term. Free market, to me, doesn't make sense because the market is regulated completely by the government. We saw during that Reddit GameStop incident that in an incident where the little people figured out how to game the system just like the big people, the government violated its own rules in order to stop them from being able to do it. So the idea that it was a free market would mean anybody can get in here and whatever the rules are, they can use those rules. But when I look at it, it doesn't seem free. It seems like a highly manipulated market. Your thoughts on this argument about free markets and how the quote free markets are gonna fix everything and set the prices and do it all.
5: Well, there's no such thing as a free market and there can never be any such thing. Governments are required to establish markets. For example, property rights. Um, You own some property and uh, the government enforces your ownership of that property if someone tries to take it away from you. Now, a free market without government interference would mean that, well, I can steal your house and there's nothing you can do about it because there's no no place to uh, to go to uh, to uh, to sue you. And so a free market without government is anarchy. There is no functioning
0: free market. All markets are
5: created by government.
0: Let me ask you about this. And I've always wondered about this. I know we're in a bit of a conversation, but I think it's important. Mm -hmm. If you're saying the government shouldn't be involved in the market, right? The reason there are corporations is because the government comes out with regulations, right, that do things like limit liability of corporations, protect corporations through uh, patents, things of that nature. So if you even go down that road, what you have to say is the government creates the regulations, creates the structure Mm -hmm. for corporations and protects the corporations from liability and patent infringement and all that. And then after the government sets everything. Everything up for corporations to exist. Then the government gets out of it, unless, of course, the corporations run, get broke, and then the government has to come eventually and bail them back out. Dr. Zahid.
5: Yes. What what, cor- what big corporations would like is to be free to do anything. Uh, there are no laws against what, anything they do. But it would be laws against, for example, consumers suing them if the product uh, turns out to be fraudulent. We don't want government to do that. Uh, we don't want uh, employers or laborers to be able to unionize. A union is a governmental-backed structure. You have a right to join a union, uh, but corporations would like that law to go away. So we want free markets in the labor market, but in the in the goods and products market, we want uh, we want uh, 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 government protection. and and regulation. Uh, and, 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 you know, regulation on the side of the uh,
0: of the corporation, not regulation to rein in their products and fraud. Could you make an argument that organized labor and unions is a natural product of quote free markets? That naturally, if in fact the people on the management and power side go too far, then the quote free market will naturally produce a force which would be organized labor to push back. So in the free markets argument. Then unions and organized labor would be a natural part of free markets. Your thoughts?
5: Well, well, even even uh, 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 classical and, and neoclassical economic theory acknowledges that um, you, as a person in a in a negotiation with General Motors, is an unfair relationship. Uh, that uh, you're one person, general motors, even, even though it's you know corporations are people by the law they're really not one person and uh, if you were to negotiate, you are at a disadvantage, and so labor unions form a corporation they form a uh, they, they are a corporation, they are a labor corporation, and that corporation provides what's called countervailing power against the against the co- other corporations that's a fair fight uh other than uh, union organizing there is the corporation against the one individual which is obviously going to be unfair
0: uh, there's an interesting article in Counterpunch, the West can't stop pillaging other countries' bank accounts. They talk about the West seizing $300 billion, and we now know it's considerably less than it appears to be, but a, a considerable amount of uh, Moscow's money. They also talk about the issue with Venezuela, with the U.K. seizing a couple billion dollars worth of their gold. And they basically, they say that this erodes trust in the financial system, and it sends the message that keeping your savings in dollars or in Western banks, it's very dangerous. You could lose them. And they go on to say, Russia, China, and the rest of the big BRICS countries, Brazil, India, and South Africa, and growing, are officially working on their own new global currency. Put all this stuff together, Dr. Taheed, your thoughts.
5: Well, the the, the fact is that the blowback to this grabbing of other people's assets, other countries' assets by by the Western countries is uh, is uh, creating a blowback. Part of that blowback is de-dollarization, but that's not something that has uh, occurred uh, uh, just as a result of, say, the uh, Russia-Ukraine. Uh, since 2014, Russia, and since um, uh, earlier than that, uh, China have been working on systems of, of de-dollarization, because they've come to understand uh very forcefully that you cannot trust western governments uh to to honor property rights over the, over their own resources and and money, and so they've been working on these alternative systems the uh, Chinese system is the cross border interbank payment system, and uh, the Russians have a have a system as well uh to allow these countries which um, uh, other than western countries which represent majority of the population of the world and in fact most of the of the of the, the production in the world uh these systems uh, uh, being put in place by China and Russia will allow these countries to to interact uh economically and uh, not have to rely on dollars because if you have your money In dollars in a Western Bank then if the the Western economies uh, don't like what you're doing they can simply uh, bankrupt you they can they can take your money and so uh, the the BRICS uh, uh, the organization of um, uh, Brazil Russia India China and South Africa and which has expanded out to other countries is working on a what a reserve currency uh, so that they can do their trading without having to, to, to have any dollars. And uh, that is a commodity-based uh, currency. That is, the value of uh, South African resources will be used to uh, place the value of its currency. And so when companies can use their own resources, including their people, as a measure of their currency, then that encourages uh, incentivizes them to use their resources and develop their people more and um, uh, Russia and India and uh, uh, India and China are using direct currency swaps so that uh, the Indians are transaction transacting with the Russians in, in rupees which is the Indian currency. And the Russians are transacting with India in rubles, which is the Russian currency. And they don't have to go near a dollar. Uh, Not only that, they can transact in their own currency. They don't have to get another currency in order to transact, which is actually a liberation of their economy. Uh, This is all uh, an acceleration of the blowback from Ukraine, um, uh, Russia, and the sanctions that were put on by the West. But it's been going on for or oh, uh, at least that 2014 for, for Russia, you where know, they understood that um, uh, the West was not going to honor uh, even the agreement that they had uh, with with Ukraine, and uh, was on that the the West was on on the move to create its own well to 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 on its on his way to sanction Russia, and not allow it to have uh, access to its uh, U.S. dollars. Uh, They've been preparing for this. And so this this latest situation just pushes that over the edge.
0: Thank you very much. We've been talking with Dr. Linwood Tawhid. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. As the U.S. bargains for the release of WNBA basketball star Brittany Griner, many Americans languish in U.S. prisons for similar offenses. A man in Mississippi is serving a life sentence for less than two ounces of marijuana. Joining us now to discuss this matter, we have Dr. Colin Campbell. He's a D.C. senior news correspondent. Dr. Campbell, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back. Let's put two stories together. Two articles. On July 27th, the Biden administration offered their Russian counterparts the deal, released WNBA player Brittany Griner and alleged U.S. spy Paul Whelan in return for the U.S. releasing Russian arms dealer Victor Bell. Griner, currently on trial, faces a maximum of 10 years if convicted of possessing cannabis. Here's another story from the U.S. A man sentenced to life in prison on a marijuana possession charge has lost his appeal to the state's highest court. Thursday, the Mississippi Supreme Court ruled that Alan Russell's life sentence was not a violation of the Eighth Amendment and was in line with the state statute. Two, less than two ounces of marijuana, he's in for life. Colin, this Griner uh, thing has opened up a conversation that's very important, particularly to people of color in this country. Your thoughts?
9: Most definitely. If you look at Brittany Griner's situation and the reason why she has been uh, held in Russia, for example, is alarming to many people here who compare their situations to Brittany Griner's and say, well, it looks like the U.S. government is doing all they can to get Griner back home, but what about the people who suffered injustices when it came to disparate sentencing, dealing with marijuana charges, especially when we see how much money companies are making with marijuana now. Uh, There are dispensaries all around D.C. I used to live out in Colorado. I remember the first time returning to Denver and seeing all the dispensaries around. And what's happening? They're making millions upon millions of dollars with these dispensaries and this burgeoning industry of, of cannabis. Meanwhile, you have... People uh, particularly, and I would say mostly, I I don't know the exact numbers on this, but past this prologue and looking at the history of incarceration in this country, it would be mostly black Americans, black American men who are languishing in prisons, dealing with sentencing because of marijuana possession charges or other types of related charges. Uh, dealing with cannabis. And we wonder, uh, many wonder, what the U.S. government is doing to try to ameliorate some of those issues. But, of course, it can be state by state. When you look at Mississippi, for example, uh, that's what's happening here. You have the highest uh, court in that state saying that there was not a violation of the Eighth Amendment, which is cruel and unusual punishment. Well, that could be arguable cruel uh, to have a life sentence is something that is given to people and it's been uh, considered not necessarily cruel and unusual. But could it be considered cruel and unusual because of the type of violation? That's where there seems to be some wiggle room. But again, not for the Mississippi State Court that, that ruled that no, it's not uh, cruel and unusual uh, for the fact that uh, there is already sentencing that, ha- that can get uh, that can be uh, sentenced where someone can be sentenced to life. And that's not really considered cruel. And it's not really considered unusual.
2: It's interesting to me as I listen to the free Brittany Griner contingent. And let me say, I, I you know, I hope she comes home soon and in and, and good health. And uh, Russia, last I checked, is a sovereign nation. They have their own set of laws. They have their own processes that they go through. And this really, to me, appears to be that Russia wants to send a very clear message. We're a sovereign country. We're going to send this through its paces. And when we're ready to do what we want to do, we will do it. I've also heard that this really also has to do with a reaction by Russia to the way that Russian athletes have been treated as a result of doping accusations or allegations. Do you have any insight into that? I don't have
9: any okay. uh, insight into what, you know, to Russia's logic or their rhetoric based on how they feel about doping. Uh, but, okay. we, when we look at doping and we look at the agencies that test athletes, it, it isn't just the U.S. That is in that jurisdiction. It's a part of a a committee that looks at the the results of the screening and makes that decision on whether or not an athlete uh, like in the Olympics can compete or not. It's not just contingent upon the U.S.'s evaluation of the, uh, the, the screening of, a, of an individual athlete. It depends on a group of people that are usually uh, diverse in nature, at least when we look at the nations involved, to decide the athlete's fate if they are deemed to have been using performance-enhanced. In drugs, for example. So I don't know if really Russia's focus, if, if that was the main focus for doping, would be, the correct, would be the right focus. However, we do know that our relations with Russia are at an all-time low, and this would be almost expected for Russia to detain Greiner and use her as a bargaining chip to some degree because of the breakdown in the relations between Russia and the United States. And I think a lot of people are looking at that right now, that this couldn't be a worse time for Greiner to have been caught or be accused of any type of drug possession, whether or not it was medicinal or an oil or not, being that uh, just the, the diplomatic diplomacy between Russia and U.S. Is, has so broken down. Um, other people wonder about Mark Fogel. Mark Fogel was, is another person, I believe, that is caught in Russia right now. Who was, um, He was trying to enter the country last year with a half an ounce of, of medical marijuana. He also is incarcerated, and his name really has not been coming up that much. Uh, again, looking at the negative effects and the uh, the perception of marijuana and just the stigma that's attached to it in other countries. And of course, yes, Russia has its... Uh, its sovereign rule and its it sovereignty, and so uh, when when we look at it, if we look at it through an American prism, not prison, but prism, we say, "Wow, this seems like a harsh punishment for Griner." But of course, it's a different country that is, you know, commensurate with some of the with the penalties that one would face if they're caught with drugs there. Much like in America a few years ago. Uh, it was a lot harsher when caught with marijuana. But since then, uh, we have more progressive laws. We've decriminalized it in some places. Um, in the state of Mississippi, where we we're talking about the individual who's facing a life sentence, apparently this was a third offense. And it can be argued that even if it's a third offense, getting a life sentence over less than an ounce of marijuana seems a bit harsh. But then there are those who said, well, it's three strikes are out. Um, we've we've known about this. This is a, an awareness, and he took his chances uh, you know, breaking the law. If you go by the, by the strict uh, confines of the law and the strict, the strict description of what that law renders, he took that risk, and, that, and he has to pay the penalty for that, even if it does seem very severe.
0: You know, I'll put it like this. I've thought of a Brittany Griner as what I would call a youthful transgression. You know, she's young. She made a foolish mistake. She's admitted that she, you know, had it. And I'm hoping that, you know, she doesn't have to pay a a large price. I'm hoping for her and her family, you know, that she gets home. She made a mistake and I hope she gets by. But again, you're in another country. If you're in Saudi Arabia, if you're in Iran, you know what I mean? If you're in whatever country you're in, Indonesia, and you get caught, that's a big chance to take. But I think... I think it is important to open the conversation once again here. And here's another example. The Legal Aid Society in response to recently released data from the New York City Police Department. We're not talking about Mississippi, showing that New Yorkers of color made up more than 94 percent of arrests. Now, this is two years ago, and some of this issued for marijuana violations and offenses in 2020. One of the things I think it's important to realize, too, Colin, is this: even in states where marijuana is legal, there are still some laws, such as maybe somebody's smoking a joint in public. There's still some laws you can only have an ounce, and somebody has two ounces. And what has been found in states where it's legal, and particularly in here in D.C., is these citations and arrests for violations of the legal laws, plants and stuff like that, still tend to be mostly people of color your thoughts.
9: Yeah, that's not surprising. When we look at drug laws, and even outside of marijuana, they have been disparate in their treatment and the sentencing of people of color and again, the focus mostly on black Americans. We, we do tend to lump those groups in together, people of color, but I, I think if you break down a lot of the demographics here, it's usually targeting black Americans. Those who have been here since the founding of this country seem to always fall short when it comes to at least some type Type of compassionate justice um, in these violations. Uh, when we look at how marijuana has always been maligned over the years, <clears throat> it was associated to black culture, jazz artists, uh, performance artists. Uh, and th- those people were particularly penalized when it came to marijuana and when it was criminalized more uh, in, in American culture. And that culture of criminalization, and, and its attachment to black American culture has always existed. And, and we're seeing this played out, playing out in our justice system as well, where there just doesn't seem to be that attention to try to get some type of equity and some... Um, some unequivocal justice for those who may have been adversely affected by laws that may be too severe, and especially in the light of what could be ostensibly seen as hypocrisy, when you have those who are profiting so much from this industry, as others are incarcerated, wasting their lives away over something that uh, many people would say grows naturally in, in a person's backyard. They have you know, passed certain laws here in D.C. where it uh, decriminalized, you know, I believe uh, it was uh, three, you could have up to six plants, only three budding plants at at a time. But yeah, those those found to be in violation of even those descriptions could face harsh penalties. Now, that isn't to say that when they are sentenced, that the initial sentencing is that severe, but it is uh, still disproportionate. Uh, when it comes to black Americans and those sentencing falling within those guidelines.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Colin Campbell. He's a D.C. senior news correspondent. Thank you very much, Dr. Campbell. You're welcome. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out.